Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Compared to professional golf, the amateur ranks are virtually nothing, at least to the casual fan. Sure, the U.S. amateur is still a pretty big and significant tournament, but unless you're a hardcore golf fan, very few watch or know who the top amateur is. Well, it didn't used to be that way, in fact, until around the 1940s, amateur golf was bigger than professional golf. And one of the biggest names in amateur golf was Ray Billows. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at one of amateur golf's most notable careers, the career of Ray Billows. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes, and today something slightly different. As this episode is being released on Tuesday, August 6, 2019, it's being done so less than a week before the 2019 U.S. Amateur which is being played at Pinehurst number 2. The 2018 U.S. Amateur played at Pebble Beach was won by Victor Hovland, who attended Oklahoma State University. He won 6-5 and five over Devin Bling and became the first Norwegian to win this most prestigious tournament, a tournament that has been won by the likes of Tiger Woods, Matt Kuchar, Phil Mickelson, Jack Nicklaus, and the king himself, Arnold Palmer. Of course, with every winner, there's a guy who wound up on the wrong side of the scorecard. And some of those include guys like John Cook and Ben Crenshaw and Tom Kite, all guys who later went on to win big on the PGA Tour. Only one man, however, has ever wound up on the losing side in the finals of the U.S. Amateur as many as three times, and that was Ray Billows, a simply marvelous golfer who has dozens of wins on the amateur circuit and is a member of two different halls of fame, recorded a hole-in-one in the Masters, and won 74% of all matches he played in when it came to the U.S. Amateur. And joining us to talk about Ray will be the author of a wonderful book, Tom Buggy, and the book is called Ray Billows, The Cinderella Kid. And Tom will tell us how Ray got the name The Cinderella Kid. Before we get to all of that, first though, just a little housekeeping. You can find out more about Sports Forgotten Heroes by visiting our webpage, sportsfh.com. There we also have contact information, so you can drop us a line and send in your suggestions or make comments about your favorite episodes. Follow us on Twitter, at SportsFHeroes, 
Instagram, Sports Forgotten Heroes, or look for our page on Facebook. And as always, please give us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Okay, while it's really unfortunate to lose in the finals of the U.S. Amateur three times, it does say one thing. You have to be really good to reach the finals that many times. And Ray Billows, he was that good. In fact, he was named to two Walker Cup teams, and he won the New York State Amateur a record seven times. His career was so well thought of, so respected, and so highly regarded that the USGA Museum in Far Hills, New Jersey, created an exhibit about Ray Billows. And we're going to talk about Ray's career and just how good he was now with the author of the book, Ray Billows, The Cinderella Kid, Tom Buggy. Tom, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you could join us. Well, thank you, Warren. I'm glad to be here. Hey, let's start with the most obvious question first. Who was Ray Billows? <laughs> That's a very good basic question. Uh, <laughs> Ray Billows was a uh, world-class amateur golfer in the period of 1930 to 1950, uh, most famous for having reached the final of the U.S. Amateur three times and not winning it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite that distinction, if you want to call it that, uh, he was regarded as, as one of the, the best amateurs of that period, once ranked as high as the number two amateur in the country. Mm-hmm. He, he was on two Walker Cup teams during that, you know, during that period. Uh, he won a, something that's still a record today, seven New York State amateur championships, which is a record that, that may never be broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, given that people don't aren't career amateurs, sort of so to speak, like a lot of the players in in his period of time, uh, you know, was. Mm-hmm. So, aside from the golf thing, uh, his golf performance, which uh, there's a personal story behind behind his life and his life in golf uh, that adds to who Ray Billows was. Uh, for example, he, he had constant conflicts throughout his amateur career with his business career, which mm-hmm. started as a $17 a week uh, shipping clerk uh, for a magazine uh, company mm-hmm. that later led to a sales position and eventually a sales executive position that constantly limited the amount of practice he could do, the amount of tournaments that uh, he played in. Uh, he turned down, for example, uh, at least uh, two invitations to the Masters from Bob Jones. Wow! Uh, he did play in two, but mm-hmm. he also turned down a few others because of because of business conflicts. So, mm-hmm. he the bottom line was he played far less and practiced far less golf than his contemporaries. You know, during that period, which fits into it. Mm-hmm. 
And the other part of what I'll call his legacy was his reputation as a contributor to to amateur golf and one of the most gentlemanly and and uh, I'll call it high character uh, amateurs of, of that time. Uh, compliments from people like Jones and people like uh, uh, others in the. Uh, I'm trying to think of the guy's name now, and I can't. But um, anyhow, that, so that's who Ray Billows is—a very fine amateur golfer who didn't win the big one, so to speak, but has a uh, enviable, enviable record as an amateur. For example, he won 75% of the matches that he played in in the, in the U.S. Amateur. Wow. Uh, and uh, we can talk more about the successes he had in sure. the early part of his career and what impacted him. But but basically, you've got a, a, a super amateur, if you will, who who didn't win the big one. Right. And, uh, and, and that so that's probably his legacy, unfortunately. But uh, but that's who he was. Where does your interest in Ray come from, and why write a book about him? Well, I I, I was a member of the club that he was a member of. The Duchess uh, Golf and Country Club was called in Poughkeepsie, New York, a club from 1897, by the way. Um, I was president of the club back uh, at the turn into the century, 2000 to 2002. Prior to that, uh, I volunteered to write the centennial history of the club mm-hmm. uh, in the in 1997. And, of course, at that time, Ray was, was still a member of the club, but he was going through the physical problems that eventually, you know, ended his life. And so it, it, he wasn't an active player at the time. Uh, I had played with Ray Billows back in the Dutchess County Amateur Tournament in 1970, I believe. And at the time, I was not uh, not into to golf history. Mm-hmm. I knew that I was playing with a guy that had been a you know a famous amateur golfer, but I didn't know any of the details and so forth. And and so after the the history of the club was was. Uh, published uh that sort of got me into golf history and i and i started looking uh starting doing research of various things mostly related to duchess and its early greenkeepers and professionals you know Mm -hmm. back Mm -hmm. back when and eventually along the line i i wrote a little thing that was uh, about ray billows that was uh a group of newspaper articles from some of the tournaments that he had played in, including the three amateurs and several and all of the New York state amateur wins and all of that kind of, you know, that kind of stuff. And so it was during the research for that, that I gained an appreciation of, of who this guy was. Mm-hmm. Then back in 2012, the New York state golf association started a hall of fame and, uh, Billows was one of the inaugural members of, of the Hall of Fame. As well he should be. Yeah, and 
and I was invited by by the association to make the introductory remarks uh, about him at his induction, uh, post-mortem, but an induction that was out at Oak Hill in, in Rochester. Mm-hmm. And we attended that, and, and, and his daughter, Barbara, and, and her husband were with us. And after the, the ceremony, after the ceremony, people came up to myself and to Barbara, and their, their, their first words were, were along the lines of, I didn't know. Hmm. I didn't know about this guy. Mm-hmm. And, and I talked to Don Allen, who won six New York State amateur things. He was inducted in that same class. I asked him if he knew Ray, and he said, uh, well, no, not really, but that's one hell of a record. And, and I, it, it occurred to me that how could those people sitting in that room in, uh, at Oak Hill, it was 80-plus years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how, do, how, how could they know what Ray Bellows was? And that was sort of the impetus, if you will, for me to think about, no decision at the time, but to think about, you know, doing, doing the, the, the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that got climaxed when uh, uh, Barbara, his daughter, had a bunch of artifacts that we had on display at the at the Duchess Club. And it's an entirely different story, but as the Duchess Club was heading toward dissolvement, which uh, dissolution, which has occurred. Mm. She wanted to know what to do with the, you know, what, with these artifacts, which included uh, the golf ball from the the hole in one he made at the Masters, and a couple of other rather, you know, some of his awards, his medals from all of the USGA tournaments, etc. Long story short, decided to donate them to the USGA Museum, mm-hmm. and so we went to, with them because I had all the stuff, so to speak, uh, to. Uh, the museum in New Jersey. And while we were there, uh, Susan Wasser, who was the uh, director of the museum at the time, uh, I was telling her about this idea about maybe writing a book, and she encouraged me to do it. She pretty much said, you really ought to do it. It's a it's a hell of a story. It is a hell of a story. So, so that's um, that's how the, the the book came to be. How difficult was it to write? I mean, you're looking or going way back into the early 1900s about a golfer. How difficult was it to write? What was the process of writing this book like? Well, (laughs) interestingly, it was not as difficult difficult as you might think. Hmm. Uh, And the reason for that is in the acknowledgments in the book, the first sentence of the book says that I owe a gratitude, a debt of gratitude to Al Gore for inventing the internet. <laughs> sarcastic font, sarcastic font, and winking smiley icon omitted. And whoever came up with, and whoever came up with the idea to digitize newspaper archives. <laughs> Those two things made practical, the idea of, of writing a book about something that happened 80, 80 plus or whatever years previously, coupled with, you know, the, the necessary uh, people interactions of people that knew Ray, mm-hmm. uh, 
and and so forth. And of course, with Barbara, his daughter, who added a lot of the personal things about him that's in the book. So, mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. Uh, so it it wasn't. I mean, it, it's a lot of grunt work, so to speak, or a lot of work digging, if you will, uh, mm-hmm. through newspaper archives, through uh, internet searches and stuff like that. But what you can. Uh, I mean, the press back in that day loved amateur golf. I mean, the press did the, uh, it really was the professional game was, was really just emerging into that period and, and really didn't start to blossom until after Bob Jones retired. So there was a lot of emphasis on, on amateur golf, particularly the U S amateur and the Walker cup, mm-hmm. you know, for example. So there's a lot of detailed accounts of, of, of matches, you know, mm-hmm. for example, plus a lot of the colorful things. And of course the Poughkeepsie newspapers just ate this whole thing up. I mean, he had more, uh, chicken dinners <laughs> for various <laughs> organizations in Poughkeepsie than, than, than you might imagine. Uh, parades when he came back from some of the, the, you know, the amateurs and, you know, and things like that. So there was a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of sources, but, but, but basically newspaper archives and, and the internet and, and, and interviews with various, uh, you know, people who knew him very well and, and knew of that time at the club, some of the, the really old timers, mm-hmm. uh, uh, made it, made it practical and, and, you know, again, a lot of time, a lot of digging, all of that, but really not a lot of raw difficulty in finding information. Yeah, you know, amateur golf, along with amateur tennis, they were bigger than the professional game back then. Um, he was known as the Cinderella Kid, later sarcastically, I guess, the Cinderella Man. Why was he known as the Cinderella Kid and who coined it? Well, it was coined by a a newspaper uh, writer from New York uh, who was covering the 1935 New York State Amateur, which um, which was Ray's coming out, so, you know, so to speak. Uh, his name was uh, George Trevor. Was a newspaper uh, writer for the I think the New York Times or the New York. Uh, Sun, I think mm-hmm. it was probably the New York Sun, uh, and all of this goes back to Ray. Ray grew up uh, in Wisconsin. Uh, really didn't begin to play golf till he was in high school. Uh, was totally uh, self-taught. Claims he never had a, a lesson, a professional lesson in his life. He came from a, a, a far from well-to-do family. Uh, he started caddying at uh, uh, at the Racine Country Club, in, you know, in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and uh, and started playing uh, area, uh, county, area, and state events, and was finishing very well. And by 1934, he was considered like the second best amateur in uh, in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. All right, and he had. Uh, he had this thought of becoming a pro, uh, and somewhere along the line, he, he ended up caddying for a man who was the head of the Western Printing Company. Mm-hmm. And it got to the point, he, he, he actually, it appears from, from what his daughter told me and so forth, that, that he, 
he campaigned with this guy to get a job with the Western Printing Company. And eventually, uh, uh, this man, Edward Wadowitz, his name was, was the head of Western Printing, offered him a, a shipping clerk job in Poughkeepsie, New York, uh, $17 a week. And he decided to, to do that. And so, right, so uh, this, became, is, this is while he's living in Racine. Yes. Yes. And he, he left Racine uh, late in 1934, arrived in Poughkeepsie to start his job at the beginning of 1935 and uh, joined the Duchess Club. Uh, and the first big event that he was to play in in New York was that 1935 New York State Amateur. All right. Now, while he was in Poughkeepsie at, at $17 a week, he bought a car. He bought a, a an old Model T convertible for $7. <laughs> and as the, the, the book said, the price of the car reflected its availability or its affordability for Ray and its sorry condition. He drove that car to Wingfoot where the 1935 U.S. or uh, New York State Amateur was. He pulled into the parking lot and the car stalled, which was the least of his problems. He was immediately uh, accosted by people saying, get that thing out of here. What are you doing? It, yeah, hard time, all of that. He had a nickname for he that told, car, didn't he? He what? He had a nickname for that car. Well, the name the car was called a Fliver, which back then was the same as Junker, Jalopy, or you know, it was okay. a, a. If you look up Fliver, you'll 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 see that definition. So it wasn't really a, <laughs> a his name for the car. It was just a car that people associated with its sorry condition, I guess. So anyhow, he explained uh, that. You know that he was a player. Uh, he had no money for a hotel room. He was going to sleep outside the car, which he had done at other qualifying tournaments and other tournaments uh, around uh, uh, New York. Uh, and of course, he was told he couldn't do that. And, and depending on what newspaper article you read, he either slept on the clubhouse uh, in the uh, locker room floor, or on a cot, or on the porch, or whatever. And he also didn't have cleated golf shoes. He didn't have a sufficient supply of uh, of clothes. And as fate would have it, a a newspaper woman, the only female newspaper or sports writer in New York City, by the name of Nan Riley, heard this story about the the car and his his lack of uh, a hotel room and and a. Approached two members from from Red Ho or from Wingfoot, and asked that they, as she put it, stake this kid. And the two members actually did. Uh, he ended up given use of the of the clubhouse and some meals and things like that. Uh, clothes, a pair of shoes, you know, some shoes from other members. I mean, they sort of took this kid. He was 21 at the time. Took this kid as. Um, uh, you know, sort sort of a wing foot son, if you will. And of course, he went from there to. Uh, he also didn't have money to pay a caddy, 
and uh, he wanted to carry his own bag through in the tournament, which wasn't allowed. So uh, the caddy, he went to the caddy and said, you know, I, I do not have money to pay you. And the caddy said, no one's forcing me to carry this bag. I want a caddy for you, Mr. Billows, that whole thing. I mean, shades of of, of Eddie Lowry and Francis we met at the uh, you mm-hmm. know, 1913 mm-hmm. you know, U.S. Open. So... So he went from there to winning this tournament, which is where the Cinderella thing came from. And I think it was Trevor, the, the sports writer, who put the the Cinderella kid on, uh, was started you know, from that event, the, the 1935 uh, New York State Amateur. What was it and about his... And other stories yeah, about how the car broke down and all that kind of stuff on his way back and, you know... There's a lot of uh, uh, funny stuff with respect to the car, which he eventually, a, a year or so later, sold, but uh, or gave to a friend, I guess, when he bought another car when he was at the uh, U.S. Amateur out in Cleveland uh, a year or two later. What was it about his personality that people, they, they fell in love with it? I mean, people helped Ray. So... Talk about his personality and why so many people loved him. Well, I think it was a combination of two things. One was he was from from day, you know, figuratively speak, figuratively speaking, day one. He was an underdog. Yeah, this guy, this twenty-one-year-old kid, shows up with, uh, you know, in, a, in the in the flivver and with with uh, you know with no caddy, no hotel, all that kind of stuff. And so there's a, I don't know what you call it, an endearment type thing, you know, right mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. But the other part of it was he was a very outgoing guy. He played to the gallery. He played to this underdog role that he had and, and some of the comebacks. He had a lot of his matches. He would recover from four down uh to you know, to get back in, to get back in a you know in a match and things like that. So I think the combination of of his underdog status, his come from behind uh, uh, performances, as well as his outgoing you know personality, that he became sort of a darling of the of the galleries and of the press. Interesting. And he was humble. I mean, he uh, even back. Uh, when he came back to Poughkeepsie, where he was, a, you know, a, certainly a hero and all that kind of stuff, he was always uh, uh, understated and uh, thankful and, uh, you know, the, the humble, a humble guy as well, which actually was part of what endeared him, I think, to uh, his whole story endeared him to people like like Bob Jones and like Charlie Yates, who mm-hmm. you know, was eventually one of the secretary, secretary at Augusta, Augusta National, mm-hmm. who, you know, who complimented him as, uh, and, and Chick Evans for that matter, the famous, you know, amateur from mm-hmm. the Chicago area. Mm-hmm. They were, were friends with him. You know, I think and, it's and a... caddies loved them. Caddies absolutely loved him. Why is that? Uh, the wing, especially the wingfoot caddies, you know, there's some photographs that uh, that we have there in the book of uh, the caddies carrying him in from a course record at, that he set at the East Course of, of uh, Wingfoot one year and a qualifying thing for the state amateur, but for the U.S. amateur, I guess it was. But. Why, why did caddies so love was, him so much? 
Well, again, because he was like them. He he was a guy that didn't have, uh, uh, you know, a lot. Didn't have a lot of money. Didn't uh, you know? Didn't have a lot of stature. Uh, you know, which was a natural attraction. And when and many of them had dreams, like the ones he accomplished, for example, uh, at Wingfoot uh, in that in that very first New York State Amateur, and so. They just, uh, he thought, they thought he was one of them mm-hmm. in, in many respects. Tom, you sort of touched on this uh, just just a few moments ago, but I think it's a very fair question to ask at this point, and that's about Ray's decision to remain an amateur instead of turning professional. In fact, after the 1937, Ray said, and you wrote this in your book, Professional golfers are not making any money. I figure that the contacts I am making as an amateur will be worth more to me in a business and monetary way than I could possibly make as a professional. I'm staying amateur. How true was this, and did Ray ever come to regret this decision? First of all, it's very true what you, what you just said, along with a couple of other uh, uh, circumstances or, or, or a couple of other factors. Uh, back at that time, now in 1934, after some success in Wisconsin, before he took the job in, in Poughkeepsie, he had talked about about trying to be a pro. Now, what happened between them and accepting this this? surefire job, so to speak, in Poughkeepsie, uh, it's really hard to say. I know his father, who came from from, from humble beginnings and humble work life, etc., uh, probably counsels him about the, you know, the risks of the, of the, the, the professional job, if, you know, if you will, versus this burden hand that he had just been offered. And when you look back at, uh, uh, at the time, the professional the professional thing, most of the professionals that were playing at that time also had club jobs. Uh, Gene Sarazen was at Brooklawn in, in Connecticut. Uh, uh, Walter Hagen uh, was at Country Club of Rochester. Many of these professionals had day jobs, if you want to call it that, or club jobs. And then, uh, you know, got permission to come play in some of the, you know, in some of the tour events, etc. So uh, it wasn't a big – and the money, for example, in 1934, the first prize for winning the U.S. Open was $1,000. Well, that's a lot 20- more than $17 a week. Well, that's true, but that's winning the U.S. Open. Uh, there were 20 places paid in that, tour, in that U.S. Open in 1934. The 20th – the last finisher got $20. And then if you weren't in the top 20, you went home with nada. Nada, correct, yeah. So I think it was a combination of things. So then what happened when he came to this thing in Poughkeepsie, first of all, he had all of the, all of the adrenaline rush or whatever, whatever it was of winning this New York State amateur. All right, so I think there was an attraction to – you, you know, to that level of golf, if you will. Uh, and as he, he said right after that tournament and the, and the big uh, celebration was held back at, back at uh, Dutchess, 
that uh, he was asked, "Are you, you going to turn pro?" And he said, "No, I'm I'm, I'm happy. Uh, I'm happy where I am." And then, as his career developed, as he went from being a shipping clerk to a salesman, and played a lot of customer golf, uh, it was that 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 corresponds directly with the with the comment that you made before about him him talking about he can do better. Mm-hmm. Uh, as an amateur, or in this case, as a businessman, uh, you know, in the in the magazine in- industry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's a little cloudy uh, in terms of just what that trigger was. In fact, one of the things I regret, uh, Maria died long before I developed a history in in in, in golf history, and and uh, let alone in this book. I I would have. Uh, I, I would have loved to ask him the question: What was the real final trigger, so to speak, that led him to stay away from the, you know, from the from the pros and remain an amateur back in 1935? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so, but that's um, that will have to wait. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> that will have to wait. I, I, I'll tell you a side story. I, I, I did some research back years, uh, whenever it was, about the early. Uh, professionals and greenkeepers at, at, the, at the Duchess Club, and, and during during that research, I had a correspondence going with the historian at North Berwick in Scotland, and I kept asking him all kinds of questions via email about uh, uh, the first uh, the first pro that had come to Duchess in 1897, and about where he had been and what he had done. I keep asking him. Questions and at one email I came back to me and he said, Tom, he said, someday in the afterlife you'll be able to ask him anything you want. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm looking forward to that with Ray Bella. <laughs> you know, he, he he worked for Western Printing and their main office was out west in Wisconsin. But he yeah. was working in Poughkeepsie for Western Printing and I guess, you know, my, my, my question is this. How successful was he, and what role did his success um, playing as an amateur contribute to his success in his business life? And I guess where I'm getting to is how supportive of golf, of Ray's golf, was his employer? And I think I read someplace that, his bosses in Poughkeepsie really wanted him to give up the game, but the give the but the big guy back in Wisconsin encouraged Ray to play, and in fact came out to watch him play. Yes, that that's that's correct. Uh, the well, first of all, the plan in Poughkeepsie was a new plan that eventually ended up doing comic books and a whole bunch of other things. It became a pretty big operation for many years in in the Poughkeepsie area. So it wasn't like it was some little satellite thing or whatever. It was a, a functioning, you know, fairly large plant. Uh, yeah, the, the the local management, so to speak, were, were focused on, on the business. Uh, little understanding, let alone appreciation of golf, so on and so forth. He was constantly negotiating for time off to play in this tournament or that tournament, uh, you know, or, or whatever. But yeah, Edward Wadowitz, who is the the head of the of, of Western Printing, uh, 
fully supported what, what he was doing. And in fact, as you mentioned, he actually flew in for the last round of the uh, 1935 New York State Amateur. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so while there was local pressures, he always had the support of the big guy, as you, as you would say, uh, to do that. And so I think, yeah, I think as, as he became known, uh, in golf, uh, he was able to use that. He played a lot of customer golf you know, as a salesman and then eventually became the Eastern region, uh, sales executive for the, uh, for the company. Uh, and so I think his, certainly his entry and maybe sustenance, uh, you know, business wise, uh, had a lot to do with golf, you know? So he did, he did benefit from the, you know, outside of golf, you know, from his, what he had done in golf. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he comes to New York and he plays a lot of his golf in the Met area. And for those of you who don't know or are not familiar with some of the courses that are in that Met area, there are places like Winged Foot and Quaker Ridge and Sleepy Hollow and Deepdale. I mean, these places are golf royalty. And a lot of Ray's golf was played in the Met area at these golf courses. What was golf like there during the time of Ray Billows, and how prestigious were some of the tournaments and championships that were staged in the Met area? Uh, very big, very big. Uh, it may not be known that the, the Metropolitan Golf Association was organized in 1897. In 1905, it started something called the Metropolitan Open. Uh, not an amateur, they had amateur championships at the time, but they started the, the Met Open in 1905, which is the third oldest open uh, tournament in the United States after oh, wow. the USGA, USGA Open and the Western Golf Association mm-hmm. Open. Uh, before World War II, it was a major event on the PGA Tour. Uh, Hagen and Sarazen won there in the, in the 1920s. People like Paul Runyon and Henry Picard and Byron Nelson uh, in the 1930s were, were, were winners there. People like Sneed and Hogan, who were just sort of coming into their own in the 30s, uh, had some second place finishes, you know, in in that period in that tournament. So it was a it was a major event. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was also a, a financial burden. They were constantly looking for sponsors and, 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 and uh, you know, trying to sustain the tournament. And when the, when the war came, the Second World War came, the, uh, the tournament was suspended from 1941 to 1949 because of the financial burden. And eventually got restored in 1949, 1950. But by then, it had sort of lost its place as a, a PGA Tour event, and uh, it's still held today, uh, all those years later, uh, mostly uh, for area, local area, I should say, area, you know, professionals, the club, the pros from the, you know, mm-hmm. from the Met mm-hmm. area. It, it's no longer what it was, but but during that period, uh, during the period of race time, he, he 
he finished, he was a low amateur in that tournament twice, uh, you know, in the, in the 1930s, uh, you know, there. So, uh, but yeah, the Met was, and still is. In fact, the Met today has got a, uh, a, there's other golf associations in the Met area, such as the uh, Westchester Golf Association. Uh, there's a state organization, the, the New York State Organization, mm-hmm. and there's also a Long Island, a Long Island Golf Association. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as you say, the courses, uh, you know, when you go out to Long Island, like Garden City, and 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 even St Andrews, which uh, some claim is was the first uh, golf club in the United States, it wasn't, but they think so. Anyhow, um, right. So today, the 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 MGA, as it's called, has has actually done some integration with uh, with the Long Island Association, with the Western Golf Association, which is housed in the same building as as you mean the Westchester. You mean the Westchester Golf Association. The Westchester, right. yes, and and also uh, with the New York State organization, mm-hmm. they're, they're basically handling. Uh, a lot of the, of the uh, New York State Golf Association events that are in the metropolitan area. So, so yeah, it, it, the Met was and is uh, a major, you know, a major factor in amateur and amateur and uh, and professional golf. Yeah, I mean, those courses that he got to play on are some of the greatest courses in this country. And what a great place to hone your skills and. Around 1937, Ray started to really make a name for himself and made it to the finals of the 1937 U.S. Amateur. Tell us about that tournament. That was that was a uh, tournament was held out in Portland, Portland, Oregon. Uh, he was just uh, you know two years since he had won the. Uh, the 35 New York State tournament. He had played in the in the amateur uh, in 1936 as well. Uh, I think he got to the uh, second or third round and 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 lost. But in let's see, 19 well, 1937, he goes out to Portland and uh, sets a course record during one of the practice rounds. And suddenly became a darling of, of CBS radio. There's a guy who I don't remember the name, but the man who was uh, the big golf announcer for CBS radio sort of took a liking to Billows and uh, gave him some, you know, some airtime and so on and so forth. And he gets to the final against Johnny Goodman. Now, Johnny Goodman uh, was the last, is still today. Uh, the last amateur uh, to win the U.S. Open, which he had done, I think, in 1933. But Goodman had never won the the, the U.S. Amateur. So the Cinderella Kid and Johnny Goodman face off in the 36-hole final of the of the 1937 uh, U.S. Amateur, and the match. Uh, I won't bore you with all the back and forth in the match, but there were leads that were lost both ways and so forth. And it comes down to the 18th, 36th hole uh, with uh, Goodman being one up. And Ray, who could could hit a, a, a golf ball with the equipment of the day, you know, in the 280 to 290-yard uh, 
uh, area. I hit a big drive on this par five last hole. Uh, Goodman was shorter and, you know, laid up and Ray decided to go for the, go for the green and blocked the ball somewhat off to the, off to the right side of the green. He was long enough, but off to the right into uh, what was a, a, a pear orchard, I believe. And uh, long story short, uh, didn't birdie the hole. Got the ball on the green, but far away, two-putted. And, and uh, Goodman had uh, hit a shot in about four, five, six feet or whatever, made the putt, and ended up winning the match, you know, two up. Mm-hmm. So he went. So he went to the to the, the thirty six holes in his you know first attempt at the thing at the U.S. Amateur. Now Goodman, as many may know, was a man of of, of similar upbringing, difficult upbringing, even probably more difficult than raised out of out of Nebraska, out of uh, Omaha, Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Uh, his father worked in the stockyards. Uh, he was one of many children. Uh, his father eventually deserted the family. The mother died. He was brought up by the parents of a friend and so forth. And uh, uh, a real, uh, you know, hard luck story, uh, you know, as a youth. And he went on to uh, to to win then. Uh, that win was his first win, and I think only win of the of the U.S. Amateur Goodman. I mean, you mm. know, whatever. So, but Ray, whenever Ray would face Goodman, he ran into trouble. He didn't fare too well against Goodman throughout his career. Is that correct? That is correct. Goodman is among all of the people that he won and lost against. Goodman is the only one that he never beat head to head. Interesting. Wow. Uh, he had tremendous matches with him, one of which was in the British Amateur, actually, uh, one year when they went over there for the 1938 uh, Walker Cup. Uh, other matches uh, that he had lost to, you know, to Goodman. In fact, he lost to Goodman in 1936 in the quarterfinals, two and one. Hmm. Uh, he, and then he lost a two-up thing in, in 19 you know, in 1937. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. a lot of the other people who <clears throat> had beaten up, probably the two best examples are Bud Ward, Marvin Bud Ward, mm-hmm. who beat Ray in 1939, and uh, Willie Ternessa, who is from the Westchester area, mm-hmm. uh, Westchester County in New York, uh, who Ray had won and lost to several times in both uh the U.S. Amateur and the and the uh, New York State Amateur, mm-hmm. uh, where they had played. Yeah, Ternessa is a big name in Westchester, New York. Off, I think his brother Jim Ternessa might have won the uh, PGA Championship. Yeah, one of the Ternessa. There were there were six, I think six, six or brothers, seven of them. Yeah, six or seven brothers, all of whom uh, were golfers. And all but Willie were professionals, some touring, you know, touring professionals, some club professionals. Mm-hmm. The brothers made it a, uh, uh, a story there is that the brothers made it a quest to keep Willie an amateur. They they, they actually supported him in, in the amateur thing. They didn't want him to become a pro. And mm-hmm. he remained an amateur his whole life, as Ray did. Mm-hmm. And there's a story about in later years, uh, they both ended up, 
at a uh, New York State Seniors event here at the Duchess Club in Poughkeepsie, and it was like a old homework thing. I mean, they or home, uh, home, old home week, old home week thing with you know with them, and uh, they became very good friends. Uh, yeah, they regionally they were in the same thing, but they had played against each other so often, you know, over the years uh, in in both you know the New York and the and the national championship so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but he had uh pat abbott was another guy he had lost to who he eventually beat uh he beat ward he beat ward in 1940 uh the year after he ward actually is the only one that beat him uh decisively in, in an amateur final it was two up against goodman it was two and one against willie Ternessa in 1948 but the thing against Ward was something like seven and six over thirty-six holes. That's when, when that in that year Ward had had the lowest score ever made by an amateur in the U.S. Open. Uh, he was having a hot year. It was probably the mm-hmm. best amateur in the country at the time. But the next year in 1940 at Wingfoot, which I believe was Ray's best chance to to get the elusive, you know, U.S. amateur. Uh, in a quarterfinal match, he, he, he beat Ward rather decisively, uh, and then, uh, lost in the semifinals to, uh, a self-proclaimed duffer from Philadelphia, but it was during that week that Ray was sick, uh, had a cold flu, whatever, you know, whatever it was, led a sports writer to say, uh, Ray Billows was in no condition to to play golf, that you know, that kind right. of a thing. Well, and, we'll, and we'll get there in a moment. We'll get to 1940 in a moment. I just want to okay. want to set something else up here. You know, you had talked about CBS radio covering the U.S. amateur. Sure, there was no television, but again, amateur golf was pretty big, and I don't think people realize just how big it was. I mean, out here in Portland, Oregon, there were like five thousand people in in the gallery how big was amateur golf back then i mean as a spectator sport and and just for my sake is the u.s amateur set up the same way today as it was then uh i think pretty much i i don't think the amateur i'm really not sure of this but i don't i, I believe the amateur still at match play yeah, uh, which it certainly was back then. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. and, and you're correct about the crowds. The crowds in Portland, you know, were they're, they're, the things for the U.S. amateurs. There were crowds that reached ten, twelve thousand people. Okay, which doesn't sound like a heck of a lot today when you have stadium courses. Yeah. You know, the whole, <laughs> right. you know, so many more. But but it was, in fact, the attendance at, at the at the at the U.S. amateur was probably was certainly on site. Attendance was 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 bigger than than typical pro events. Maybe not the U.S. Open, but but other you know professional events. And it was it was a big thing. I mean, the radio broadcast uh, uh, was 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 part of it. Uh, in fact, there's a story about the, the back in Poughkeepsie, people with their you know with their ears set the radios, you know, getting news of the, of the, you know, of the match with Goodman and, you know, and all of that. But it, it, of course, locally you would have that, but, but that was, there was national broadcast CBS as, as we said. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
So back again to 1937, after his terrific showing in the U.S. Amateur, he was selected to play for the U.S. in the Walker Cup at St. Andrews. Not St. Andrews here, but St. Andrews across the pond against Great Britain. How big an honor was that for Ray, and how big was the Walker Cup back then as opposed to what it is today? The Walker Cup was much bigger back then, I think. Uh, the Walker Cup is still is still uh, uh, important, and it's still, I mean, it's televised now. Uh, you know, not like a U.S. Open or something, or even the U.S. Amateur, but, it, you know, it's, it's been televised. It, it's it's important, but it was really important back then. It was along with the U.S. Amateur, the you know the two biggest amateur golf events in a, in an area in an era where amateur golf was still uh, uh, you know a very a very important part of the of the golf the golf scene in this country. So mm-hmm. as for Ray, he always answered the question what he considered the biggest thrill that he had in golf. He was the the Walker Cup was always what he mentioned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that to him was was the big thing, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, though, and they, he, his yeah, record there was uh, he played in 1938, also 1949, back at Wingfoot. Uh, he won uh, two matches, lost two matches, and and there I think it was a it was a, uh, a smaller format then in terms of the the number of players or certainly the number of ma- the number of matches that you played. But that was that was the first time the U.S. had lost a Walker Cup. That's that's correct. Yeah, and that was uh, uh, he was happy with his performance, but he was not too happy, uh, according to to the you know, the press reports and so on, with uh, being part of the first losing team. I guess they atoned for it in 1949, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that was always his biggest thing in golf, so to speak. And it was a big deal. I mean, that er- helped him earn, you know. An invitation to the Masters that and and his performance in the thirty seven U.S. Amateur. Talk about Ray's game. He liked the short game, but there were those who thought his long game was better. And strategically, he approached a round of golf, match play or meadow play, much different than many of the other golfers, including guys like Bobby Jones. Talk about Ray's game. Well, Ray's game was, was, was the long game was his strength, uh, both driving and uh, an iron play, uh, long iron play. He, he, there was a quote way back when at one point that Byron Nelson had said that Ray Billows was the best long iron player, pro or amateur in the United States. Wow. Uh, that's saying something. Yeah. Uh he, in fact, when I played with him in that in that uh, Dutchess County Amateur Tournament you know, back in 1971, which we would have been 56, I guess at the time, he hit iron shots the way, well, I'll say the old pros or the previous generation pros would hit, not the the, the high trajectory balloon balls, whatever you want to call it, that are so prevalent today, but the kind of shots that sort of started out low rows and then just dropped. However, they hit those it's from a big downward motion, I guess, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, but he 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 hit the ball that way. I would say the weakest part of his game was probably putting. He was not a bad putter, but he he wasn't a great putter either. 
So, but his long game was was uh, was his strength. Now, what about and strategy? Oh, and what about but, strategy? He, right? Didn't well, you write about? Strategy, he yeah. disagreed. He, yeah, he disagreed with Jones. Bob Jones, you know, old man Parr, as attributed to Bob Jones, was, was uh, his strategy was to, if you could, you know, make Parr, you'll eventually, you know, win most all the time. Ray, on the other hand, his his strategy or his philosophy was to beat the beat his opponent shot by shot. In other words, if if his opponent hit the ball. Uh, you know, 250, he wanted to hit a 260. Uh, or if uh, his opponent hit the ball 10 feet from the hole, he wanted to get inside that. And his, so his whole thing was shot by shot. And if you can you can beat the guy on a shot by shot basis, you're obviously going to win. Mm-hmm. So there was a mm-hmm. divergence with the great Jones uh, in terms of his approach to playing. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting themes throughout your book was Ray... Bobby Jones and the Masters. Sometimes Ray would play in the Masters. Sometimes he wouldn't. And I guess some of that had to do with his his business affairs. He did meet with some success at the Masters. You mentioned before he made a hole in one. Tell us about Ray and Bobby and the Masters and about Ray's and Bobby's relationship. Well, I think the starting point or that discussion has to be that that Bob Jones loved amateur golf and loved amateur golfers. Even though he retired in 1930 after winning the, the Grand Slam, uh, he remained associated with uh, with amateur golf and supportive of amateur players, both in terms of bringing them to the Masters and 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 he attended many of the the following years of of, of U.S. amateurs. And so I think Ray's association with is probably more so with uh, through Jones to, to Charlie Yates, who was a fellow player back at the time with a contemporary of Ray's, uh, you know, during the th- 30s. And of course, Yates was, you know, heavily associated with Bob, Bob Jones as, uh, as well. So, uh, the one, well, there's two stories I'll tell that that uh, about about Ray Billows and Bob Jones. One was uh, Bob Jones at the Masters had a ongoing wager of, of of a match with every amateur that played in the in the in the Masters. Uh, and this one year, uh, when when Ray was in the Masters. It was either 1939 or 1940, Ray actually beat him, uh, beat Jones, in, in a match. And uh, as the story goes, um, and we had the uh, the check to prove it, uh, <laughs> Ray won the dollar and uh, asked Jones if he would give him a check instead of a dollar bill. And uh, Jones said, uh, of course, I do it all the time because no one ever cashes the check. <laughs> so... Uh, we have a photograph of the check. One of Ray's uh, grandchildren, I think, has the check itself. Uh, but we had a uh, facsimile of the check, the, the photograph of it that was displayed at the you know at the club for many years. It's part of what was uh, donated to the USGA Museum as as well. 
The other story with Jones, which uh, is one of several uh, anecdotes that uh, associated with Ray, I believe it was in the Portland uh, match in 1937 that Ray was apparently stymied under a under a uh, a tree. Uh, had to make a shot that got got under the tree and still reached uh, you know reached the green from uh, from you know, a couple of hundred yards out or somewhere in that neighborhood. And he hit this low hook around the around the tree that. that that, that Rose went and actually ended up on the green uh, fairly close to the hole. Jones and Yates, for that matter, were together in the gallery watching the thing. And Jones said, as the story goes, said out loud, I don't think there's anybody in the world that could hit that shot better than Ray Billows. Wow, that's a huge and, compliment. And, yeah, and one of the uh, gallerites who, who was there said, Mister, are you kidding? Bob Jones could hit that shot with his eyes closed. Obviously, not recognizing Jones. And Jones says, "Well, I, you know, I'm never let on who he was," and said, "I'm not so sure Bob Jones could make that shot." To which the gallery guy said, "Mister, have you ever seen that son of a bitch play?" That's good stuff. So that is uh, that's a great Bob Jones Ray Billows uh, anecdote that uh, that's lasted for many many years. Mm -hmm. You know, nineteen thirty nine didn't end very well for Ray on the golf course. Once again, he came up short at the U.S. Amateur. This time, losing to Bud Ward. But the year did end on a high note with his marriage to Eleanor. So things were sort of looking up. And now we go on to 1940. And, you know, it wasn't that good a year for Ray. And you had started to talk about this earlier. He lost the amateur at winged foot. He was battling the cold or a, a, a cold or the flu. How disappointing was 1940 for Ray Billows? It was disappointing, very disappointing at the time. And I think became even more disappointing uh, a year or so later when World War II took away the USGA events, including the Open and the Amateur, uh, for four years from 1942 to 1945, uh, when Ray was in his late 20s, would have been in his early 30s at a very prime time and uh, lost, as other amateurs at the time did, lost, uh, you know, an opportunity to, you know, to win, to win that one. So I could imagine that uh, in that, in that void of, of not having a tournament to play and he, he had to think back that 39 or well, 40, 1940 was uh, the biggest one that got away. And, and I tend to agree with that. I, I think he had everything in his favor there. He was, he, he the guy that, that beat him who lost by the way, 11 and nine or something in the final <laughs> to a wing foot member in, in that, uh, in that amateur I mean, he, he had to think that that might have been, especially when the tournament wasn't played for those four years, it might have been a, a last chance for him. Yeah, so like you say, um, you know, 
1942, 43, 44, 45, there was no U.S. Amateur. There was no U.S. Open. The USGA canceled all of its events. Ray served in the armed forces, but not in the most conventional of ways. Talk about Ray's assignment to Camp Grant and teaching a general how to play. Did it or did it not happen? I, I don't know. I don't know whether this is a real story or whether this is a, uh, a, a legendary tale or whatever you might want to call it. Urban legend. But, but he uh, he was drafted, and I forget the exact year it was, but he, he, he was drafted, and as the story goes, he was boarding a train uh, to go to uh, uh, boot camp, I guess, or to go to, you know, to training. And uh, a so-called general, uh, who was a golfer or an aspiring golfer, I guess, noticed uh, uh, the billow's name and uh, had him uh, assigned to a, uh, a post uh, near the general, which happened to be uh, uh, a rehab, a medical rehab part of the, of the army at the, at the time. Now, whether, whether the general ever got lessons or, or whether all that's true, I, I really don't know, but that's part of the story. But what it did turn out is that Ray did train uh, at a medical facility and ended up being in central New York, uh, near Utica, New York, in a rehabilitation center for, you know, so injured soldiers that, you know, were being rehabbed after, you know, coming back from the front. And, uh, you know, taught him golf, you know, was part of it as I'm sure other, other things as well. Uh, so that was his, that was his world war two, you know, service during, during mm -hmm. that time. He did play the New York state, uh, the New York state amateur was played in those years. In fact, he won in both 1943 and 1945, uh, two of his seven New York state amateur championships uh, during that time. He got permission to go play. Yeah. So while Ray at this point had lost in the finals of the U S amateur twice, he was sort of able to keep his game somewhat sharp during this period of time, although he was getting older, but you know, all along, throughout his career, he had been winning other tournaments besides the U.S. Amateur. Talk about his overall game and the, the types of tournaments that he was winning and some of the guys that he was beating. Yes, he did. You know, he, he played in... Uh, well, he finally won, which was one of his other big goals. He finally won the, the Metropolitan the Met, the New York Metropolitan Amateur Championship in 1948. He had uh, he had reached the final as that as way back in the 30s and, and several other times, but had had never had never won it. He won that in in 1948. As I think I mentioned before, he was a low amateur in the Metropolitan Open twice. He also played in a in a uh, a tournament called the Sweetser Victory Cup. Mm -hmm which was a, uh, a, a, 
important amateur East in the United States, Eastern United States uh, tournament named after Jess Sweetster, who was uh, another famous amateur from way back in the 1920s who had won uh, won the U.S. Amateur, had won, uh, uh, had played on Walker Cup teams, was a Walker Cup uh, captain later in later in life or whatever. Well, Ray won that tournament. Uh, playing against the, the top amateurs in the metropolitan area like Ternessa and, you know, and others. He won that five times, which is a record. The tournament is still held, but not as, uh, uh, not the way it was then. It's now a member guest event at the St. Andrew, the other St. Andrews Club in, in Westchester. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He also played in a, in a, in Later on in a tournament uh, in Manchester, Vermont, at the Aquatic Club, which is a famous a famous club in Vermont, uh, that the first president of which was Robert Todd, Todd Lincoln, one of Abraham Lincoln's sons, and they had a uh, this Robert Todd Lincoln Cup, uh, which was a, an annual event up in up in Manchester that drew players from throughout the East and, and other places. He's won that six times, which remains a record as well. Uh, so he played uh, locally. There was a uh, uh, something called, there is something called the Hudson River Golf Association, which is a series of clubs from lower Westchester up through uh, uh, beyond Poughkeepsie, as far as Hudson, New York. Along, all clubs along the river, you know, along the river that uh, uh, still exist today that dates w- way back to the late 1800s. He won that championship, I think, six times, although he didn't play in it, you know, all the time. Uh, so he played in 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 what I call area things. He also played uh, during the war years. He actually got out and he played in the the so-called Hail America tournament. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's the one that Ben Hogan won. And wished it had been counted at as 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 a U.S. Open victory. Yeah, Ben at least uh, publicly thought that that was the record, you know, fifth Open, and mm-hmm. the USGA disagreed, and uh, uh, and it was a separate tournament. It was not the U.S. Open. It was uh, the USGA was. But actually gave a medal for the tournament that looks on the front at least looks just like the medal that's given to the uh, to the U.S. Open winner, but the back of it you know calls it to you know the tournament that it was. So he played in a couple of war uh, related events in the in the Chicago area, uh, you know during the war as well. With uh, there was one tournament that was a pro am for as well as an individual am and an individual pro thing, a combo type of thing, where he was supposed to play with Gene Sarazen. Uh, Gene, for whatever reason, didn't show up, and I forget who he played with, but I think they they finished uh, in the top ten of, mm-hmm. of the of, of that. So yeah, he played uh, you know area as well as the national and uh, uh, state tournaments as well. Mm-hmm. So the war's over. Ray continues to play, and he's got a pretty good game going on. And 1948 was to be his year. This was it. This is the one he thought he would finally win. He would finally come up the winner 
in the U.S. Amateur, but once again, he came up short. It was played in Memphis at the Memphis Country Club, and Ray lost to Willie Ternessa, who we've spoken about, in a match that went 35 holes. He lost 2-1. and one. Billows, at that point, became the first player to ever come up short in the finals of three separate U.S. Amateur tournaments. I think he's still the only person to lose in the finals three times. Obviously, it was disappointing. How did it affect Ray? Yeah, I mean, you know, we could say, you know, oh, yeah, how disappointing was it? It was disappointing. How did it affect his game, and how did it affect him mentally? Uh, One of his characteristics, which is also going back to something we talked about very early in this thing about what made Ray Billow likable, so to speak, or uh, a hero amongst fans and caddies and so forth. He goes back to I think his his humble personality, you know, or, or, or whatever. He there's all kinds of quotes of him in various USGA articles and other things where he he talks about uh, importance of being a, a a good loser as well as a you know as a good winner. Mm-hmm. He always on the least on the surface, even when he came back to the club in Poughkeepsie and you know and. Spoke, uh, talked about that he gave it his very best. He lost to a better guy. Uh, it was a tough break, but you know, those are the breaks. You know that kind of a thing. He, in other words, he he accepted defeat, you know, fairly well. And I don't think that it had a um, any kind of a debilitating effect on him mentally, you know, or whatever. I, he accepted that as about as well as you might think that someone could accept it. Actually. And didn't Chick Evans write him a note about that? He did. Uh, I think Chick, uh, they had become friends. And another amateur, I, I don't know what year it was, but it was out in the, in the state of Washington or whatever. And Evans by then had started this, the Evans uh, Caddy Scholarship Program, which is the biggest uh, caddy scholarship program in the United States. Uh and there's a there's a photograph uh, of Ray with um, Chick and a bunch of caddies at the you know at this this amateur tournament. I think it was in the the later 40s, in the later 40s. Yeah, I, I think Chick probably uh, understood the the uh, how Ray might take the loss or you know or whatever, and, and sent him a letter that. Uh, uh, congratulated him on his showing in Memphis and 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 commended him for uh, what he had contributed to amateur golf and and and, and so forth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and after that, when you look at at his record in the amateur, uh, after 1948, he uh, did not reach. He reached uh, the fourth round four or three times, I think. And he never reached. He never got past the fourth round uh, after that, mm-hmm. and he started to lose matches. Uh, he lost in 1950, for example, in the first round, which was only the second time that he had lost in the first out of 15 amateurs that he'd lost in the first round. He lost to Gene Littler, 
who <laughs> many will know was uh, you know became a very famous sure. you know, professional golfer, U.S. Open winner, and and so forth. But he lost to Littler like uh, six and four. He he lost. In fact, the next year he lost in the fourth round to Ternessa again. But instead of two and one, he lost six and five. So his game his game was was uh, deteriorating. You know, at that well, point, he was getting time. up there in age. He had to be in his mid to late thirties at that point, as opposed to being in his you know. He was. He, well, 19, 1950, he would have been uh, 36, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, all right. Now, when you contrast that, another interesting thing, when you, when you look at his record, in the first seven uh, amateurs, U.S. amateurs that he played in, he reached the quarterfinal or better, including two finals, in five of those seven years. And the matches that he, the matches that, that, were bef- the two matches that were uh, before the quarterfinals were were match results like two and one. Yeah, in other words, very competitive. You know, so I mean, five out of seven years he w- he was right there, so to speak. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, and this was when he was in his you know when he was in his uh, early and mid twenties. Which, when you look back on it and think about, well, gee, what 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 might have been in in. Uh, if those World War II years were given back to him. You know, while he didn't win the U.S. Amateur in 1948, it did earn him another invitation to play for the U.S. in the Walker Cup in 1949. So he's 0-3 in the finals of the U.S. Amateur, and the one time he had played in the Walker Cup, the U.S. had lost. He is starving for a big win, and this time the results were much different. In fact, the U.S. downed Great Britain 10-2. to Ray had to be thrilled. How did this rank as far as Ray's greatest accomplishments? Well, given that it's a team event, uh, certainly it was something that he was extremely happy about. Uh, he actually, when you go back to '38, when he he was like two and two, he lost a very tough uh, singles. He won a, te- a team match, an all in a shot thing back then, and and lost in a uh, the match or the the overall match had already been lost when he lost uh, the uh, Cecil Ewing, who was an mm-hmm. Irish uh, amateur, uh, on the 18th hole. As a matter of fact. Uh, and he was disappointed with the team loss, but fairly happy with the way he had played in it. And and now you jump forward to 1949 when the route, you know, at Wingfoot, you know, by the way, and he and Ternessa were actually the one, the the number one U.S. team mm-hmm. in that in that Walker Cup, and they lost in the in their <laughs> in their all in a shot match, and then he won a singles match that you know that year, so. Uh, I'm sure that was a that was a, a big thrill for him. As I said before, he the the Walker Cup was his the thing that he focused on most when asked about uh, the best part of his career. Mm-hmm. As far as amateur golf is concerned, there have been some great great career amateurs. Where does Ray Billows rank? I would say in the upper tier of that. Uh, you know, and again. It, we all focus, the world focuses on winning, 
on winning the big one, so to speak, and no matter what sport you're talking about, actually. Uh, so, I mean, that's a void. There's no question that that's a void in, in his record. Okay, but when when you look at what he did accomplish in terms of reaching the final three times in a you know in a in a twenty year in that twenty year period, that post Bobby Jones you know period, uh, the seven New York championships, the two Walker Cups, uh, you know there's a lot there from a golf performance standpoint. Was he as was he as good as Bud Ward? Probably not. Was he as good as Johnny Goodman? Probably not. But he was damn close and, you know, mm-hmm. right there with them and anybody else. Now, when you go on to other years, uh, and I won't even talk about Tiger Woods, what he achieved in amateur golf, but you go back at uh, Siegel, for example. Jay Siegel. And, and other, and other, well, Siegel eventually became a, a, he a played a little bit. In, uh, he played a little bit of professional, pro. yeah. Yeah, right. But but he had won a bunch, and they're. But today, when you look at it today, uh, these guys don't stay amateur long enough to make an amateur record. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, not with the money that you could win <laughs> you know, on tour. I mean, they're they're, they're you know they're uh, well. You look at the guys coming out of college now. Wolf just won a tournament on the PGA Tour in his third or fourth attempt, mm-hmm. I guess, or mm-hmm. whatever it was, but. Uh, yeah, and it's it's true even at the state level here. You don't there there aren't that many career amateurs anymore. Uh, at least ones that have a record that approach what what Billows did. So mm-hmm. I think if you look at it in the maybe the best way to put it is the article that was written about him in the in the USGA Journal uh, some years back, and the title of that uh, amateur was or that article was a great amateur. And I think that fits. Mm-hmm. Uh, that fits in terms of, of his, not just his golf, but what he contributed to amateur golf, what he was thought of as a as a as a player and as an amateur. Uh, yeah, highly respected, you know, that kind of a thing. So, I, I would say upper tier, without you know making any kind of claim that he was you know the top one, two, or three, or whatever amateur that ever was. Uh, but certainly, he was a world class player without without question. What surprised you most in your research about Ray Billows? I think his his and I got a sense of this also from people who uh, had played with him. Bill Bogle uh, was a very good amateur. One the New York State seniors things played in some uh, U.S. Senior Open uh, amateurs as well. Uh, was sort of the guy that followed on after Ray at the at Duchess at the club. And had played with Ray, you know, in Ray's later years, you know, there was a gap there. But in any event, that uh, his determination seems to stick out. I mean, and it's evident in some of the comebacks he had in some of these matches that are detailed in, you know, in the book. But um, he was dogged, you know, type of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, he... I think he was conflicted uh, to to some degree with between his job, his career, so to speak, business career, and, and and golf, and how much that took away from maybe opportunities that he might have had on the national, you know, a national golf level. Uh, I was surprised a little bit by that 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 was such a big factor in in 
in in his career. The other thing that was uh, uh, was surprising was his personal life, his, his his life with Eleanor, for example, his wife, and how that all came about. Uh, it was a it was a Somewhat of a surprise. <laughs> it was. It was somewhat well, of a yeah, surprise. Yeah, I mean that way. You want to talk about class difference? Uh, this lady was uh, uh, from a very, from a well-to-do local family, high society, in the Poughkeepsie area, tennis club, uh, the old Poughkeepsie tennis club, and a champion, and uh, private, private, uh, private high schools, and co- you know, colleges, uh, daughters of the American Revolution, all that kind of stuff. And here's you know Ray Billows in his you know in his early twenties with uh, didn't have golf shoes with cleats, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, and she was of course a darling, a very good looking young girl, and uh, uh, sought after by by the guys at the tennis club, all that kind of stuff, and uh, and here's Ray that wins the wins the girl, so to speak, you know. So there's there's a lot of that, and there's some of that story and the, how it all came about is, is is part of the story that won't go into here. But it's uh, uh, another part of what made him that 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 whole thing about uh, how he he ended up with the girl, so to speak, was was surprising. Mm-hmm. You know, Tom, we could talk for quite a bit more, but then I'd be giving away everything that you wrote in that wonderful book, Ray Billows, The Cinderella Kid. So tell our listeners where they can get a copy of Ray Billows, The Cinderella Kid. Uh, The book, it's it's available uh, on uh, Amazon.com as well as uh, BarnesandNoble.com. There's both the uh, paperback version as well as a hard copy, or a hardbound book as well. Tom, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. And should you write anything else, please let us know. I'd love to have you back. Well, I thank you. And I I appreciate the opportunity to tell this story. That's how I, that's why the book was written. And this is another opportunity to do that. And I'm grateful for that. And uh, as you may know, uh, or you do know, uh, because we got together based on this was about Rod, Rob Turpening's uh, screenplay that he's trying to get made into a, into a movie about Ray Billow's life. And while I think there's, uh, I mean, that's a tall order. Sure, uh, sure. What, what is now 85 years later, <laughs> you know, uh, whatever. But he, he's doggedly determined to, to, to do that, and he's still at it, and... Uh, so if you you know any uh, movie directors that might have a, or producers <laughs> that might have an interest in something like this, uh, you might tell them about it. You got it. You got it. Tom, thank you again for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. You're welcome. Thank you, Warren. Certainly, World War II played a major role in what could have been for Ray Billows, as it did for so many others in all walks of life. Could he have won the U.S. Amateur? Well, we'll never know. But he certainly had the talent to do so. What interests me more is the fact that he decided to remain an amateur instead of stepping into the world of professional golf. And this was at a time when guys like Hogan and Nelson and Sneed, 
they were just arriving on the scene. There were a few who were making it in the professional game as well. Guys like Walter Hagen and Gene Sarazen. But Billows had a good job, and that provided him the opportunity to earn a living off the course and to practice his game and perfect his skills while competing at the highest of levels. And, I guess, the comfort of knowing you will make a comfortable living while playing golf as an amateur was just too much to give up for the risk of trying to earn a living playing the game professionally back in the day when Ray Billows played. I'd like to thank my guest today, Tom Buggy, who wrote the book, Ray Billows, The Cinderella Kid, a really interesting account of a guy so few golf fans have ever heard of, but a guy who was most certainly one of the best golfers of his time. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.